Doing It With Mike Sachs is looking to get some more visibility. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes to help us out. And don't forget to visit audibletrial.com slash doingit for a free audiobook and a free one-month subscription to Audible. That's audibletrial.com slash D-O-I-N-I-T. It's yours? No, I... mother said she found it in your closet. I don't know. One of the guys must... Must have what? Look, Dad, it's not Where did you get it? Dad, Answer me. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. All right, all right, it's mine. I came to pick it up after the basketball game, and I was going to take it to a party. Well, now you're a supplier. No, Dad, a lot of kids bring stuff. What is it, a potluck? (laughs) Oh, 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 here we go. Now, it may not be Miller time, but it is vanilla time. (laughs) Heather, these are amphetamines. Huh? You know, speed, right, spinnies, uppers. Parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. Welcome to Doing It With Mike Sachs. And Rob. I'm Rob. I'm the producer of the show. Welcome. This week we've got another huge episode for you. First up, an interview with Harrison Scott Key, author of the memoir, The World's Largest Man. Second, we have an interview with Krista Renee and Amy Kumai, the creators of Bright Light Magazine for Girls. And finally, friend of the show Ian Goldstein brings us a fantastic interview with photographer Marissa Scheinfeld. But before the interviews, I wanted to read some fan mail. If you want to send fan mail and have it read on the podcast, make sure you email us at doingitwithmikesacks at gmail.com. Now, it's interesting, though, because this is a physical letter, and we don't get a whole lot of those. The letter seems to be written on the back of an old piece of tanned hide. It reads, Comely Widow, who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts of LaPointe County, Indiana desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman with a view to joining futures. No replies by letter will be considered unless the sender is willing to follow an answer with a personal visit. Signed, Bell Gunnis. Well, most people from this area have heard of Bell Gunnis. She would apparently lure men to her farm through ads in newspapers where she reportedly would kill them. <laughs> Harrison Scott Key is the author of the memoir, The World's Largest Man a true story about what it's like to be related to insane people from Mississippi. Harrison's humor and nonfiction have appeared in the New York Times, McSweeney's, Internet Tendency, Salon, Image, Southern Living, and a lot more. Mike and Harrison spoke by phone. When it comes to comedy and when it comes to the South, there's a real disconnect, I found, that a lot of people, especially in the New York publishing world, look at the South differently than those who have lived there. They look at comedy differently. Like their sensibility does not necessarily match our sensibility. Yeah, you know, I was grateful that um, the book connected with a lot of editors when we went to auction. And Cal Morgan, who eventually bought it, he had done, I think he's from Hartford, Connecticut, but 
he had actually he had edited Rick Bragg's book about Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm-hmm. You know, just a, a solid like he this guy he he had edited Jess Walter and Roxane Gay, and he was a big fan of jazz and blues, and he just had a real. Um, he didn't look down on the South. You could tell when you talked to him. Uh, he had a real admiration for the culture. And, of course, you know, there's the great Southern authors. But um, one of my fears about the book is that it would be sort of pigeonholed, you know, like Cracker Barrel humor. You yeah, know, like, yeah, right. And I, I was really worried about that. I didn't want it to be in the humor section or to be, you know, I didn't want it to be on the on the bookshelves with, like, Jerry Clower and Louis Grizzard, God mm-hmm. forbid. Yeah. Um, even though those guys were hilarious and and they knew what they were doing and they had their markets uh, and Cal was Cal I think got that and uh, he he championed the, the literary side of it without um, sacrificing the sort of southern gothic uh, you know part of it too. Well, that's that's one of my questions. I mean, can you be a southern writer and just a writer? Because you know you're not a northern writer if you come from the northeast. <laughs> um, I think I mean like. Yes and no. I mean, you look at somebody like uh, um, Donna Tart. She's from Mississippi. She's from Greenwood, where my mom is from. Um, but she's managed to not be a Southern writer. Um, she, you know, probably, you know, you probably have to. She probably had to make some decisions to limit that. You know, like, I mean, if you, you know, if you write more than one thing that gets published in Southern Living, like, well, that's that's what you're doing. <laughs> that's your thing now. Yeah, and so you know, like, I mean, I think she's one of the few writers who's who've been able to, uh, who are very much from the South. And of course, there you can find Southern that Southern Gothic tone throughout so much of what she does. Um, but really, it's such a handy marketing tool um, because the South loves to buy books about themselves and books that help them understand like the really terrifying, terrible strange curious history of the place and so you know it's a i mean the answer to your question is it is i think it helped with book sales that this was a the the book was marketed as a southern book you know it's got antlers on the cover you know it was reviewed by garden and gun it was mentioned in southern living and the bitter southerner and that really helped i mean that gave because it gives people an identity like they they sort of know what they're getting a little bit even though I'm really, I think the book is really making fun of the tropes, a lot of the tropes of Southern literature. At least I tried to do that. Um, but then I know it, it could disappoint people for my next book if it's not about Southern themes. Like, and I, it's not really. I mean, I, the South is mentioned in my next book a few times, uh, and, I, and it, a lot of it takes place in the South, but I don't really address the themes. That, that's not really what this next book is about. And I know that that will be a disappointment to some, and on, and on some level it will be a liability. So what, what are some of your pet peeves when it comes to memoirs and also when it comes to Southern memoirs? Oh, I hate memoirs, man. I mean, I struggle. Like, so I just, okay, pet peeves. Uh, anything that's chatty, I hate, like, you know, I, I, I loathe to mention certain authors, but but anything that feels like chummy, um, I don't like. Uh, I mean, I feel like a, a memoir should be one of three things. Any book should be one of three things. It should be funny, it should be suspenseful, or it should be beautiful. And ideally, you want it to be all three. And 
So like, you know, think of the classic, you know, Speak Memory, Nabokov. Like, that's just a beautiful book. The paragraphs are, you know, you feel like you're at a museum, like looking at beautiful art with each paragraph. And so that's what carries me from page to page in that book. Like, I don't care what happens in that book. I just want to hear how he describes the snow. You know, like when I when you read those paragraphs, you feel like you're in this beautiful hall of mirrors or at an awesome, amazing, like grand imperial dragon Chinese buffet. Like, it's just so much to look at and taste. And then there's books like, um, uh, and I feel like that about Michael Herr's Dispatches. You know, it's in a, in a different way, but that I just want to hear how he describes moment to moment what he's seeing in that book. And I don't really care where he, I don't even, I'm not really even expecting to go lots of places. I just want to go with him wherever he goes. Um, or I want to book, I'm sorry, go ahead. But it's also interesting where they go. I mean, uh, they both, the two authors you just mentioned, had experiences. And one of my pet peeves with memoirs is I don't want to read about your three years at a writing program. That doesn't interest me. I want to read about someone who has been somewhere where I haven't been. Yeah. Yeah. Behind the curtain type stuff is, is I really like, I like that in movies too. You know, like I love movies like rounders where the narrator starts to explain like how, you know, secret illegal poker games happen. Yes. Like I like that. Yeah. And, and I like that in books. I mean, a lot of that was the motivation for, for the memoir, which was every time people found out I was from Mississippi, it was always like, really? What's that like? And I never thought it was anything special until I realized that so many people had no idea what it was actually like to grow up in a place like that. And so that became, I was like, oh, that's my, that's my secret gift. That's the inheritance that I have from my family. So I went, those are really funny, crazy stories. And of course I would do interviews then and nobody believed it. You know, like I could tell if somebody was interviewing me and they were from like Vermont or Wisconsin or, or a big urban area because they'd be like, did this stuff really happen? Whereas, you know, if somebody was interviewing me from New Orleans or, you know, Atlanta, they'd be like, I think we're cousins. Like, it was like a completely different reaction. Yeah. Um, but but that, again, that's like you said, it was it's because I was sort of entered, like pulling the curtain back and saying, well, this is what it was like to grow up in this place where these weird things happen. And if that sounds weird to you, it was weird to me, too. Well, that's what I loved about it beyond a lot of other things. It was you, you weren't fetishizing this place. It was this was what my life was. It didn't really appear to be strange at the time, but I look back now and it was certainly different than what others experienced. Yeah, it, you know, like the first I think the first time I knew that my family was weird was I was in high school and we were talking about, you know, Christmas or Thanksgiving or something and, and I explained how the men all eat first and the women serve them. And you know, and then there's some girl who's like what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, the men eat first. <laughs> she was like, uh, no. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I think my family's weird. Cool. <laughs> you know, the book reminded me of um, the writing of Gene Shepard. I don't know if you ever read Gene Shepard's books about growing up in blue-collar Indiana. But there was a real honesty there. When we were talking about authenticity before. Nothing seemed made up in his books and nothing seemed made up in your book, with, with a lot of memoirs that I read, either events or certainly dialogue seem that it's been, uh, you know, creatively altered. But I didn't get that sense at all in your book. 
Oh, that, that means a lot. I really appreciate that. Um, and yes, I think a lot of, I think two sort of inspirations for my book that I didn't even really realize until I was into the, really the meat of writing um, was Gene Shepard, um, not only his book, but of course the movie Christmas Story and also uh, The Wonder Years because um, both of those the, the TV show and the movie you have a narrator who's much older who's looking back and the tone of that is what creates both so much humor and so the, the sort of more like not tone but the rhetorical angle of somebody in the in the future talking about the past both creates comedy and a lot of pathos um, and I've been rewatching The Wonder Years uh, with my children because it's a great it's a great TV show for kids who you know don't get dick jokes yet. Um, it's a, and we've been rewatching it, and I have forgotten how tender and just sort of sad that show was. And I, I don't know if you remember it. Um, I, I remember it very well, and that's very interesting what you just said because I didn't. When I think back on that show, I think of the current. In the, in the present tense, but I don't really think back on the narration now. I had not seen that show as an adult. I should rewatch that. That's interesting. Yeah, you, you really should. Now, you have a daughter, too, and so she's at a perfect age to watch it, too, because there's so many issues in there about growing up, and uh, my daughters are 6, 8, and 10, and um, <laughs> there's an episode where Kevin gets a pimple, and... <laughs> Uh, it was awesome, and my kid, two of my girls, started crying. They're like, "Are we going to get those two? Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> but, but the, the narrator um, was, you know, the guy, the tall, tall, skinny guy from Home Alone. Yeah, Daniel and, Stern. Yeah, and the narration is most of the punchlines happened in the narration, not in the dialogue. And that was that realizing that as I was working on mine. Um, you know, you talked about pet peeves, and one thing I tell my students when when they're writing humor or memoir is that um, in dialogue, the punchline should probably always be in somebody else's mouth rather than your own, because it sounds a little bit like, listen to this hilarious thing that I said to my dad in 1985. Yeah, yeah. And nobody thinks that's funny. And so... You know, also in 1985, like I was the idiot. I was the one who was completely lost. And so why am I going to be dropping these hilarious punchlines? Right. Well, that's my pet peeve when it comes to comedy in general. When you see these shows written by middle-aged guys who are putting, you know, delicious quips into the into the uh, mouths of 12-year-old boys, that doesn't happen like that. That was one of the great things about Freaks and Geeks is that the writers could come up with funny dialogue, funnier than what the kids were saying, but to keep it realistic and to keep it authentic, a lot of the things that these kids said just weren't funny. Yes. Yeah, you got to find I feel like whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you've got to find a vehicle for the humor. And I mean, like, what's going to, like, where, where do the jokes come from? And I think, um, for me in the, in the world's largest man, it was, it was about, uh, my confusion as a, say a 10 year old and my recognition of that as a 40 year old. Uh, and so some of the, you know, the, so the descriptions 
a lot of the humor comes from the descriptions that the 40-year-old is making, trying to describe the sort of expressionistic horror that the 10-year-old is experiencing. I think that's a great lesson. I think it becomes exhausting when the reader feels that they have to laugh and be amused by the narrator with something they said over the course of 300 pages. It's almost too much. Yeah, you, you need, you know, like I tell my students, they need to be the villains, the villains and the, and the idiots of their stories. Um, and you just got to find, you know, like there are my best friend, Mark, uh, has made several appearances in this new book. And he's, I mean, I think there's one line about him in the first book. And, uh, and then when I realized that so much of what he says is a punchline in my real life, then I'm like, oh, then, so then I start, I put the spotlight on him and a lot of those memories because he's delivering the lines that are making the most sense out of what was happening. And so, so instead of, I'm not inventing lines for him, but I'm just looking really closely at those particular memories because wherever he is, he's got really great stuff to say. Yeah, I think – and that, that's – have your students picked up on it? It's such a hard thing to teach writing, but beyond that, to teach someone how to write in a funny way is extremely difficult. Yeah, it took, it took me years. I mean I could be funny in talking, you know, talking to – you know, somebody you know, talking in class or talking to a group of people or describing some zany thing that happened the day before. But translating that to, to writing, it really took me about 10 years to figure that out. And I, I write about that in the new book um, about how I learned, you know, uh, not to be funny, like, you're, you know, you're born funny or you're born with the predisposition to it. Um, you know, I, I tell my students if they want to be funny, the, the best thing they need to do is to be born ugly. And <laughs> that every, that most of the, they'll, they'll either they'll either be really sad serial killers or they'll be really sad and funny <laughs> if they're lucky. Um, but to go from be, from just quote being funny to intentionally writing funny was one of the most difficult. I'd say the most difficult thing I've ever done professionally. Well, it's such a – well, talk about that because this is what I find with, with people who are funny with comedians. They can't always make that transition to the page. On some level, you know, you have to make it literary. I mean you want you want to – when people read, they want a, a literary experience, meaning you, know, you want a sensory experience. You want, to, you want to recreate scenes in the mind and that's not necessarily a funny thing and so – you know, I mean, like you said, learning how to write is hard enough. Learning how to write takes people a decade or two decades to do that well. And so to learning how to write funny, it's like just add another decade onto that. At least it was for me. I'm thinking about like uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Are you a fan of that book? I am. I'm a big fan of, of Tool. Um, I love that book. I mean, I, it's my it's my number one favorite. I've, I have a couple of Charles Portis books that are pretty close. Um, but then, like, if you look at Michael Scott from The Office, and you look at Ignatius Riley, you look at I Love Lucy. What you see are all these fools, people who are they are occasionally very confident idiots. Like um, Dwight Schrute from The Office is a very confident idiot. Kramer is a very confident idiot. Uh, Ignatius Riley is a very confident idiot. You know, these guys have no self-effacement at all. And then you take, so those are the, 
those are the confident fools. They're in, of course, they're all over Shakespeare. Malvolio, Twelfth Night, very confident fool. Um, Dogberry, Bottom from much uh, from Midsummer Nights, very confident fools. And what's funny is the audience. It's the same principle of dramatic irony that works in Oedipus Rex or any any other tragedy, which is the audience knows that they're dumb. And often other people in the story know that they're dumb, but they don't really know how dumb they are. And their confidence is what makes it so funny. Then you have the other kind of fool, sort of phony fools. People who are trying, they, they, they think they are pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. But they're so stupid and they're so weak. And that's like Michael Scott or George Costanza. And so realizing that so much humor comes out of foolishness and these two different types of fools and a fool who's trying to fake somebody else. And the key to it is the audience or the reader knowing that that person is a fool. So there's got to be a setup. Like we have to know, like you have to know that I know that I don't know Chinese when I am trying to pretend with my date that I can order in Chinese. Right. So the audience needs certain information um, and that setup. And as I'm working on the book, I'm just sort of slowly realizing this and then trying to decide, okay, what information does the reader need to understand that this character or that I in this scene didn't know X? And so you start to build it like that, and then eventually you, you get a story. People don't laugh at machines. They, they want to see <laughs> – effortlessness you know i did speech writing for a little while um and that really helped too like learning how to guess when an audience is going to laugh or where a punchline belonged in a speech for somebody else who'd you write for i wrote for the president of scad paula wallace um that was a job that actually that was actually how i ended up in savannah i was teaching english in mississippi and they needed a speechwriter, and a friend of mine worked here, and he called me. And I'd never done that. I'd always sort of wanted to try. I mean, I had, you know, I'd written plays and done stand-up, and I taught English, and and so I had a lot of sort of stuff in my tool bag, and I thought it'd be fun to try and write speeches at a at an art school. And it, it took me about a year to to finally get where I could write like one or two jokes for her she, she wasn't Stephen Colbert I'm not like writing a comic monologue it was like just you know just sort of subtly sliding in one or two lines that just lighten the mood and might make people laugh and and where she could sort of make fun of herself um, but even when I wasn't writing humor for her or writing a funny line in a speech just trying to write to modulate the emotional tone of a speech with pauses and I would actually write in stage directions in her speech, you know, like a pause here or pause for applause or take a breath. And that really helped get me sort of into that mode of how human speech happens when we hear it and when we read it. And that really helped with the book, I think. I, I was That was right before I really got deep into writing the book. I think that helped a lot. It does help a lot. Did you go to these speeches to see the, the reaction, the live reaction? Oh yeah, yeah, I definitely went, and um, and it was that helped. I mean, that you know, I'd, I'd follow along with the script, or sometimes I would just close my eyes and listen. And Paula was a is a great rehearser. I mean, she was very meticulous, and you know, I you know do all the pronunciations for her and put those as little footnotes, and we'd work on it. And that might be an emotional moment in a speech, and you know, she'd write a little happy face out beside that in the in the text. And so I, I got to a point, or sort of we, because we did all our writing together, we got to a point where it's all, like we, 
learned how to sort of control the, the sort of psychic vibe of the room just with her talking. It was really crazy. And that was a really, you know, that's a very empowering feeling for a writer to realize you can do that with words. And, and I, that really translated directly into writing the book because I felt like I was doing that in sort of the interior space of the reader as, as they're reading. Yeah, and that's a great thing to do. I mean, I recommend that to anyone. Go before a live audience and try to read your work and see what the reaction is. It'll often, you'll get sometimes laughs where you didn't expect it and vice versa. Yeah, you know, you you performed recently with Sedaris, is that right? Yes, I did. So he he does that. He'll he'll do his revising based on audience laughter. Is, is that that's is that right? Yes, it is, and it's astonishing how hard he works. Where a piece isn't done until it's published. So when he's working on a piece, and I heard the same piece read a few times, he will jot down what the reaction is, and he will tailor that piece to that reaction. So even if he loves a joke and it gets zero reaction, his goal is to make it as funny as possible for others. So he's always tweaking these pieces. You know, that's what I love about humor is that, you know, it feel, I mean, I feel like you're like the Terry Gross of, of humor, my friend. <laughs> you <laughs> oh, so many people. Um, you know, you're taller than her, I think, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like so sure got, about that. <laughs> you've got this sort of this range of experiences of talking to people. Um, so you may have a different perspective, but one of the things I love about it is I tell my students that it's pretty much the only kind of literature where you can immediately know if it's good or not just by listening. And that's a powerful gift, you know, to be able, I, you know, I, I teach this humor class and I tell them, I'm like, all right, we're going to read your pieces out loud. And here's the deal. If nobody laughs, that means it's not funny. And I don't know how else to say that. It, it might mean it, it might not mean that it's bad. It just means it's not funny. And don't try to explain to us why, why we are not laughing. Because, you know, our laughter is the, it's the, it's the surest truth detector I know. And you can't make people laugh. You can only sort of invite them. You can sort of you have to sort of flay yourself at the altar of laughter and hope that it blesses you. That's right. And, and that's what I love about it is that you know <laughs> somebody reads like a really you know mediocre detective story in, a, in front of an audience. You can't tell if people are asleep or if they're really engaged. They're just because they're staring. But with humor, you know, you know, and that's so. And that's so powerful, and it's, it's so it's inter it was interesting to learn that that David Sedaris does that um, because he's honoring that you know he's honoring where people are laughing, and because that's it, like laughter is a good thing like it's good like it is a it needs no defense, and so if you're going for it and searching for it and trying to sort of create the space that will make the most laughter. Of course, you need you know you need dead dead spaces and you need white space and you need moments where people aren't laughing. Um, but if you're doing that, that's that's great. And I've I've tried to do that. And, and of course, even with reading on my you know my book tour, I did so many events, and I'd be reading these passages that were so good and that were so funny, and people weren't laughing. And I'm like, but this isn't a book. This was published. <laughs> And, like, and then I'm like, oh, wait, like they're right and I'm not because they're not laughing, which means they don't want to laugh in that part. And so I had to ask myself, like, well, 
should I cut that or what? And so eventually I just started like editing my book and readings and I'd cut whole paragraphs that just weren't, that weren't creating the funniest moment in that particular event. If the book was published after these readings, would you have taken out those sections that did not get the laughs? Probably. Yeah. Or I would have shortened them. You know, again, it's not like I was trying to, I mean, some people criticized the book for saying that it was, you know, too funny. Uh, and I don't know if that's possible, but, um, that, you know, it was this constant laughter, constant joke after joke after joke. And I get that. I mean, I can read passages and I can be like, wow, man, like I was really needy when I was writing this page. Like I was really trying to just, you know, I just wanted, I mean, Mike, I just wanted to write a book that was, that made me laugh like Hitchhiker's Guide or Confederacy of Dunces had when I was in college. Like I just wanted a book that made people laugh and feel like I felt when I laughed reading those books. And so there are some pages where it's just like, you know, machine gun jokes, just one after another after another. Um, and so I don't, I don't necessarily think that's, you know, you don't obviously want so many jokes. I mean, you know how it is when you see a live stand-up show. Like, it seems like after about 45 minutes, you just stop laughing. Like, you're just all out of laughter. Yeah. And at least that's, that's how I get. But I do think if I went back now and wrote it, It'd probably be about twenty thousand words shorter. It'd be a, I mean, it'd probably be about a third shorter than it is now. That's interesting. Yeah, Woody Allen always said that seventy-eight, seventy-seven minutes was the limit. It should be for comedy. But I didn't get that feeling with your book. With your book, one of the reasons I found it so effective was laughs can only take you so far. But if you like the characters, which I did in, in this book very much that will take you to places that laughter wouldn't take you to. And the reader will stick around to read about these characters. I was like, Oh, the humor, I'm not writing the book for the humor. The humor is, is my tool to understand who, who I am and who my family is. That's right. I think as readers, we're hardwired to want and need stories like this. This is what we want. And if it's tethered to some sort of realistic situation or realistic characters, that it becomes that much more effective. Yeah, I completely agree. So you were talking once in an interview I found very interesting about this. You said there was a difference between an anecdote, a story, and then a story with a capital S. Can you talk about that? <laughs> okay, so an anecdote being, well, this this thing happened. Um, it's just a recounting of events. <clears throat> it's a, It's just plot with no meaning. So this happened, or not even plot, it's just, again, a sequence of events. And a lot of times when I started writing and and when my students write, they think they're writing a story, and a lot of them are trying to emulate, you know, Sedaris when they're trying to write funny stories. But what they do is they just end up giving me an anecdote, just a recounting of an event that happened. I know nothing about them, nothing about how this story changed their lives, who they were before it, who they were after it. Um, so that's an anecdote. At least I, it, when I teach, that's how I describe it. A story is where there's a real meaning, you know, like why did you do the thing and then how did it change you? And then, you know, the uppercase capital S story is really where it's really a, a se- sequence of events with meaning. That's the hard part is what does it mean? As you are writing the story, what are you learning about the world? And what are you going to tell us you have discovered about the human experience? 
and for me, that's the that's that's the challenge, and that's what why I think that's why it's so difficult for young people to write great stories, is they haven't they just don't have the meaning yet. They don't know what it means, and and how can they? I mean, you're a lucky son of a gun if you can write a great meaningful story when you're 20. I mean, it just because I was an idiot when I was 20. I'm an idiot now, but I I know a lot more words than I did when I was 20. But I think that's the that's what's difficult about it is what does it mean? Well, listen, I'm a big fan of your writing. I, I I'm very particular when it comes to memoirs. I think so many just try to be like a Sedaris, and people are encouraged to I think by uh, editors and agents. But yours was one of the funniest that I've ever read. It was beautifully written, great stories, great characters, and I encourage anyone out there listening to go out and get it. The world's largest man. Harrison Scott Key. You can reach Harrison at Harrison Key on Twitter and HarrisonScottKey.com if you want to find his biography and more of his work. Do you have any last words for the listeners? I didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I just want to say thanks, Mike. That was very kind of you to say. Next up, Mike speaks with Krista Renee and Amy Kumai, the creators of Bright Light magazine. Bright Light focuses on stories for girls, ages 8 to 14, and is a collection of submissions from girls all over the world. Bright Light includes photography, interviews, articles, recipes, crafts, journals, and advice curated just for them. Not only does Bright Light empower young girls, but it also has an editorial board run completely by young girls. Mike, Amy, and Krista spoke by phone. What made you want to start this magazine, and when did you go about doing it? We started, what, April 2016, so we're pretty brand new, and um, I, I have a daughter, she just turned 11 last week, and I had been running this idea around in my head for years. My daughter, um, she battled some self-esteem issues, and we had some issues in school, and she just really kind of doesn't fit into what the norm is for girls and um, has a hard time kind of connecting with people and finding people that, that like the same things that she likes. And there was really nothing out there for her to look at or to read or, you know, and she just kind of went into a hole. And so we had talked about doing it for a long time. And it wasn't until I talked to Amy, who has been a, long, a friend of mine for years, that we were like, Let's do this. Let's get it together, and and we just kind of started right away. <laughs> and, yeah, and like for me, what was attractive about it wasn't necessarily the magazine aspect, but working with the preteen demographic. And um, you, you know, for me personally, all the opinions that I formed about myself were good and bad during you know my preteen years. And uh, I remember growing up and thinking there was like no role models or anyone who looked like me or anyone that represented my experience um and that kind of made me feel like you know being in this in this weird hole that made me feel isolated in a way and uh i think we just wanted to change that and not only you know i have a daughter i have a three-year-old daughter not only for our daughters but for all girls and we just want to try to make something that represents girls in a way that's genuine and as inclusive of everyone as possible so that nobody does feel like that. 
Well, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting age where my daughter's at now, where she she's too young for a lot of things, but she's too old for some things exactly. too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This magazine uh, just sort of hits her in the perfect spot, and I think, I mean, the way she took to it was interesting because I I had never seen anything like this, but the way she t- you can't convince an eight year old to like something, and she really took to it very quickly, which I I was really surprised and actually delighted to to see that makes yeah and, and that's kind of that's kind of the same situation i was in with my daughter it was like you know she her her reading level is higher and, and she wants to read all these things that are not quite appropriate for her yet in terms of content and 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 she was gravitating towards towards, towards things that she's not ready for but she's too old to be in the little kids section and so she was kind of just floundering around looking at you know, we were looking for stuff that she could digest and stuff she could be a part of, and her interests didn't really align with the groups of girls that we have. You know, she's um, she's more into, like, taxidermy and art and music that isn't, you know, on the radio. So for us, uh, it started as a way to kind of just, like, let's get our friends to create work and, and, and get some of your guys' stuff published, and, and you can see stuff that you're proud of and, and start a community for you girls. From my daughter and a couple of her friends, and and um, and it's been they're all so proud. proud from there. They just kind of grew, yeah. Where we just wanted to be, you know, we wanted to be, we wanted we wanted an alternative to what was already out there, which was just nothing. Nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, it was like you know, opinions like, hey, what kind of lip gloss color should you wear? And like, you know, they're they're young girls; they have their whole lives to be grown ups. Why, why should we force them into that? Circle, and it's you know, this, this is such a small, um, short period in our life. Why is there nothing out there like this? I mean, wh- is it an advertising issue that magazines that that aim for teenagers and tweens have to have uh, products in there to advertise to pay the bills? I think I think that is a big part of it. I think there's nothing like I think you know, it is a true labor of love us, us doing this book. It, it we don't have advertisers in it. On purpose, we don't want to advertise products to girls. Um, you know, we we basically keep it running on subscriptions and sales. And um, I think that in general, kids right now this age are just being forced to grow up really fast. Um, and and that was our goal. I, there's nothing like it because it, it is such a precious time. And it, it's I think it is a tricky market in general. It's just one of those. Like you said, you can't force an eight-year-old girl to like something. They just they have this visceral reaction to something, and whether they like it or not, we underestimate them, especially that age group. They they know what they like, and they're savvier than adults in, um, I guess, smelling out bullshit. You know? Completely true. I mean, they have no problem telling it like it is. It does amaze me that it, something like this, and maybe it has, maybe I just miss it, didn't exist uh, before this. I mean, I, I sort of have my ears to the ground just seeing what might interest my daughter, but I have never really run across anything like this before. No, there's been, I mean, there hasn't been anything. There's, there's Rookie, which is amazing, but a little too old for um, the age group that we're talking about. It's, you know, a lot of sex and boys and dating and drugs and, and things that are just an older content. And then below that, you have, like, Highlights Magazine or, you know, things for little kids that 
this age group obviously is too old for that and not interested. But it did amaze us, too. Like, it, I, you know, that's a part of the reason why we're like, you know what, let's just go for it. Because it is. It's, it's crazy that nobody's tried, at least, to do something with this age group in a way that feels... I don't know, just 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 about just about celebrating them, and I think that's why our magazine works. Um, and, and you know, I mean, obviously, it's all magazines are like there's a billion reasons, but one of the the main reasons why I think this magazine works is because it is just these girls and their ideas and their stories. And what 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 is there not to like about that? Or as a as a as a young girl, when you see nothing else out there that feels like you. And it really is made by the girls. I mean, we have, like, you know, we have a board of girls that we talk to. The the girls are creating not only the content in the magazine, but they're also kind of curating what the magazine's going to be about. We have lots of brainstorm sessions. Um, you know, we really try and keep it true to what they want to see and what they want to read about. And I think that that's a really special thing that no one has really tried to do, especially for this age group before. And I think that they know that. They can see that it's real, and they can feel that it's for them. It's not adults trying to feed them information that we want them to have. Well, how old are we talking? I mean, we, we usually say, like, around 8 to, like, 14 is our demographic. After 14, we tend to lose them to, to, be, <laughs> to think, you know, they're getting more interested in the dating scene or, you know, other things that aren't really that, that middle age. So 8 to 14 is yeah. what we've with contributors being older, a lot of our contributors are 15 and 16 that create content, but, um, you know, one of our, our goals is that the content has to be able to be digested by an 8-year-old in terms of its, you know, its content. So I, I don't know who was saying this, Amy. Was it you that you were talking about your daughter with self-esteem issues? Oh, no, it's Chris. That was me. Chris. So what, what are we talking about specifically? Are you willing to talk about that? Yeah, no, definitely. I'm pretty open about and so is my daughter. <laughs> Um, so well, my daughter, um, my son got diagnosed with diabetes when he was two, and we were out of the state on an island. It was really, it was really dramatic and, and scary. And when we came back from that, we spent kind of a whole year learning how to take care of him and learning, you know, our new life. And at the time, my daughter was six. So at six, she had this big life change. And not saying that we ignored her for a year, but our priorities shifted for that year while we learned, you know, our new system. And she started first grade. And she's the type of girl that you don't really know anything's going on. If, you know, she won't really talk about it. And so we thought she was fine during this whole year. And when she turned seven, she just kind of broke down. She ended up at the Tourette's Clinic at UCLA. She had every tick like under the sun all at once for about six months. I mean, it was, it was the hardest thing we ever went through. She, because of that, she, like, didn't want to go to school. She couldn't be around friends. She was so embarrassed. She would cry every day. We got her into therapy. She said she wanted to not be alive anymore repeatedly. It was really, it was, we were in a really bad place in the family. And not, try not to cry right now, but it was really, it was devastating. And we didn't know what to do. And she didn't have anyone to look up to, and she had a really hard time talking to us about it. And so we just started brainstorming her and I, like, projects and things we could do. And she got really excited about creating something together and getting other girls involved. And what really solidified it for me as a parent was we were on a hike 
Sorry, my voice is shaking as I'm trying not to cry. But um, we were on a hike, and she was like, you know, Mom, and this was about a year after we had started the whole process of, of getting her in therapy and getting her help. She was like, I really want to write an article um, about my tics and about what I went through because maybe other girls out there are going through the same thing and they're really scared and, and they don't know that someone else has been through this and maybe I can help them. And I was hiking in front of her, like, totally bawling. I cried at anything, sorry. <laughs> I was totally crying, trying not to, you know, show her that I was a mess. And after that, I came home, and at the time she was, like, seven and a half, and it just started, we started making stuff and, and kind of really brainstorming it more. And, and then it, you know, life got ahead of us, and we got busy, and it wasn't until a few years later that we actually started. So that was kind of, we, we took her out of school at that point. She's, both of my kids are homeschooled, and I travel a ton, and our lives kind of changed from that point, and Bright Light has become, both of my kids, really, their, a lot of their schooling is done there, the interviews. Um, we've learned so much, and we've done so much through the magazine that it's been, for my family and for my children, it's been amazing, especially for my daughter. Um, so that's kind of, that's the self-esteem journey we went through. <laughs> Well, when you say tick, I had ticks growing up. What, what sort of ticks does she does she have, or did she? Oh my goodness! Every single tick you could imagine. I mean, she's had them since she was little, and when she gets stressed, she still has them. Um, she's older now, so she can kind of find like, uh, you know, a more socially acceptable version of her tick. Like she can turn a, t- a cough tick into something that, you know, isn't as crazy. But at the time, she was jumping, humming. Um, throat clearing, um, eye twitches, pulling her hair. I mean, it was the nail thing. The nail thing. Yeah, at one point we were at the Nutcracker Ballet. She she loves to go to the Nutcracker every year, and, and that year it, it was horrible. We were there, and she had a coughing tick, and, and she was trying so hard, but a grandma next to us actually totally shamed her at the Nutcracker and was like, you guys need to leave. Like, your daughter can't stop coughing. She's, you know, this is, this is not acceptable for everyone else who's watching the Nutcracker. And I'm like, it was just, and so we actually got up out of the Nutcracker because she, she just felt so ashamed and, and we left and I didn't want to start a huge argument in the middle of the Nutcracker. Um, so we, we've been through all the ticks. And at this point now she's, you know, she's just like, it's part of me, they're my habits. Like, if they bother you, I don't care. Good. Well, is, is you think it's Tourette's related or OCD related? Um, hers is definitely related to OCD and stress and anxiety. I, I wouldn't classify her as having Tourette's. At the time, we thought she might, but she, she doesn't have it. Well, the fact that you know and understand is a great thing. I mean, I had OCD as a kid. My parents didn't know what was going on. I mean, they, yes. and I thought I was losing my mind. Yes. But How I, old were you, Mike? Well, it hit when I was uh, sixth grade into seventh grade, so I guess I was 10 or 11. Yeah. Yeah, that's a crazy year for kids, I feel like, like 10, 11. Did she have strep throat? Um, she does. I, we kind of, I, we've gotten it a few times. Yeah. She, she, she has had it. Cause that there is a link between the two. Yeah. I've read, I've read that and we had a doctor talk to us about that too, actually. It can just, it can just switch. I remember it happening to me and it's really literally like a switch. I would say her and I both just kind of run hot. Like the women in my family were the like anxiety, OCD, like always alert people, you know? 
Yeah, well, I will, I will say this. I, I put out two books of interviews with comedy writers, and I started asking, I started with David Sedaris because he wrote about his OCD, but yeah. I also started asking these writers because I have it, and I wanted to know if there was a link between comedy and writing and OCD, and I would say 75% of the writers that I've interviewed, and there's been a lot, have or have had OCD. Wow, so interesting. But what's interesting, too, is that it's they, they've managed to. It's almost some. It's almost a, a power that they that they can now funnel into creativity. Where the the ticks that they had as a kid or as a young adult, they've sort of funneled it into now an OCD and obsession for writing or for comedy. So it's it's a great. It's a it's a powerful thing to have if if you know how to deal with it. But certainly at that age, at ten, eleven, twelve, it's it's bigger than anything they they can deal with. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. But it's great that your daughter is uh, coming through that. I mean, it. Do you think her friends did care that she had these ticks, or is it just she was self aware of what of what the ticks were about? She's so self aware. She thinks that. It bothers people, and she thinks that it's a bigger deal than it is sometimes. I mean, not so much now, but when she was in school, you know, she's not sitting there learning or absorbing information. She's sitting there trying not to tick and, and obsessing on, is everyone listening to her cough every time? Mm. She's not actually listening to what the teacher's saying or even trying to, you know, have normal situations socially. She was literally just sitting there trying to get through the day, and then she would come home and completely break down. So... She has a really great group of friends, and I don't think they give a shit about anything like that now. Mm-hmm. But kids that she didn't know at the time, she had a really hard. She, you know, she got made fun of, and she went on medication for a little while to help with the depression. Um, she got really dark really fast. I mean, she tends to run really, really dark anyways. Her favorite thing is taxidermy, and her favorite movie is Beetlejuice. And I can't get her to wear a color. That's just she was born Wednesday Adams. I can't really change that. So if that's already there, I don't, you know, we try and keep her light as much as we can without, you know, we're not trying to change who she she is. She is a darker, deeper thinker, but she can go into a hole really fast. So my goal as her mom is to try and keep her out of that hole. Everyone has issues, and that's just kind of how we go, you know, basically everyone has shit. Everyone's got stuff that they're battling. You don't know what it is. Try and treat everyone with kindness because right. of that. <laughs> a lot of reasons. But. Just, you know, showing them. Yeah. Yeah, like just, just unburying all of that and just making it normal. There's nothing to be ashamed yeah. of. Yeah. Right, well, that's a major life lesson. I mean, once you know that everyone has something, it sort of lessens the pressure on yourself. Exactly. And that's kind of the whole point of Bright Light. It's like we... So all the kids with ticks. No, <laughs> but I mean, it's like we, we want everyone to feel... That it is a safe place that, like, if someone wanted to, if there is another girl out there or, you know, that's going through anything, like, we would, we, we welcome those journal entries, we welcome those stories, like, it's so important for girls to feel that they can share. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, and I I started reading this magazine I guess maybe six to eight months ago. It, this is an only um, a more vulnerable time not only for girls but for everyone with what's going on politically. Yeah, we we have heard from a lot of people that Bright Light is really needed, especially right now. We've heard that um, a message is important, and we've gotten so much support, and and I really feel 
Like, it, it, it truly is. It's so important. It was important before the election, and it's even more important now. Yeah, and, like, you know, I, I think our general, my general, I can't talk about crowd criticism, but my general um, default is, like, Hey, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of grown-ups right now. Exactly. How any woman could support the views of a Mitch McConnell, a Steve Bannon. They're fucking lunatics. They're lunatics, greedy bastards. I think greedy is a big word. Adults suck right now, basically. But younger, the younger generation, I'm so proud of how involved they're getting. It's ignited something that can't be turned off easily. And this, this younger generation is working so hard and resisting what's going on. And, and that's amazing to see. And I, I hope that it continues, and I hope that we all keep fighting. I hope, at the very least, that this is like a, a boil that's just excised. I hope it, this is the worst it gets. And we, oh my God, we me too. see how bad it is now. But certainly... You know, to have a, a, a product like what you're putting out is only beneficial. Where do you see it going? Books, movies, podcasts? The idea is to get Bright Light as a community out there more and get get some of our Bright Light girls into schools, into workshops, you know, helping inspire other girls all across the country, really. I mean, that's the goal. We don't really have, like, corporation partnership goals, but we definitely have, like, we would love to be able to work with libraries across the U.S. or schools, and I think that would be amazing. Well, yeah. I, th I think there's a hunger on both parts, for the, from the girls' standpoints to, to learn about the world, but also those out there willing to teach, like the interview with Dolly Parton on your on your website. Absolutely. I thought that was amazing that she would take time out to do that. And I, yes. I do think that you can, you'd find that, whether they're doctors or performers, writers or whomever, to take time and to deal with the next generation, basically the generation that's going to save all of our asses. Exactly. And everyone's been so supportive of it. And it's, you know, if you can create a spark in a young girl, something she hasn't, you know, like... It's so great that Dolly Parton did that. It's, it's amazing, really, that she took time out to do that. And that's, that's kind of what we've noticed with women, right? That they, they keep saying yes. It's been pretty amazing seeing just all kinds of women, from anyone that is someone like Dolly Parton or um, someone that works at JBL or doctors or whatever, just contacting us and saying, I want to, I want to, I want whatever you need from me, I want to help. And that's... You know, not only the response that we've gotten from daughters like yours, like, but just women and grown-ups in general, I think that's been a big indicator that this needs to exist. Okay, so if there are listeners out there who want to be involved either um, by ordering this great magazine or being interviewed or associated with it or helping it in any way, what, where can they go to, to find out information? Our website, which is www.brightlightmag.com. Brightlight spelled B-R-I-G-H-T-L-I-T-E. Brightlightmag.com. Well, you guys are doing great work, and I wouldn't mind checking in with you in six months to a year to see what uh, you've accomplished since we've last spoken. That would be great, Mike. <laughs> we would love that. Great. Hopefully we have a little pantsuit army out there. Yeah. <laughs> Finally today, 
friend of the show Ian Goldstein speaks with photographer Marissa Scheinfeld. Marissa has traveled across the globe to countries including Israel, India, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia. Her latest project, however, brought her back to her childhood home just down the road from the once thriving resorts of the Borscht Belt in upstate New York. In her new book, The Borscht Belt, Revisiting the Remains of America's Jewish Vacation Land, Scheinfeld documents the largely forgotten Jewish getaway where young comics like Mel Brooks, Rodney Dangerfield, and Woody Allen regularly performed in the 1950s and 60s. The photographs show how the popular destination deteriorated over time. Ian and Marissa spoke over Skype. If you could describe exactly what is the Borscht Belt and why it has that name. What is known as the Borscht Belt is present-day Sullivan County and Ulster County, which are 90 miles away from New York City. Just zip over the George Washington Bridge, up the Palisades. And um, it was coined the Borscht Belt because Borscht is a very typical Eastern European cuisine. Cold beet soup served with... I don't know, sour cream on top and some chives. And because of the Eastern European influence and the many Eastern European, primarily Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews that went to the Borscht Belt, it became known um, as the Borscht Belt for for really that reason, because of the food, the cuisine, um, and, um, you know, so many different ethnic groups had a place in the Catskills. The Borscht Belt was just a primarily Jewish destination. It was a place where of leisure. It was a place where you can go to a hotel, different price points, different religious observances. Some hotels were kosher, some weren't. You could go to a bungalow, you could go for a week, you could go for the entire summer. And so many people worked there, um, you know, paid their way through college. And, you know, um, it was a real source of culture, huge place of culture, but also economy. And um, eventually, you know, when it when it faltered, um, you know, it, the, the county and the region really lost a lot. And my project focuses on um, what's left of the Borscht Belt. And really, it's about loss. It's about change. Um, but it also has this tension between Mother Nature and history. And um, there's a lot of cultural re- resonance in, in the photographs. Um, but they're also a lot about you know, the ruin and the wreckage and, and what's le- been left behind. One of those pictures uh, was, was the, the cards and the poker chips. So they basically these are, these are cards and poker chips that seem to be left there from however long ago, 50 years or so. Everything in the book is as I found it. You know, each hotel, I photographed about 40 hotels in bungalow colonies out of the 500. So many have been repurposed, turned into... Um, orthodox destinations, rehabilitation centers, meditation centers. I was interested in, in looking at the ones that were stagnant, almost the, the creatures that loomed over the landscape in various states of ruin and because of either political or economical reasons hadn't been redeveloped. So many of them literally look like a scene that, that is apocalyptic where people just left and never went back. And everything that I found was almost, uh, I, I call them still lives. They were arranged by, by other people going in there for their own reasons, whether they were hanging out, partying, photographing, paintballing, squatting, scrapping for metal and worthy um, objects to, to get money for. 
Um, and everything was just arranged by, by time and by chance. So um, I really, you know, it's like against my photographic religion to create scenes. I'm really interested in just looking at what I see and moving my body around to capture, um, capture the photographs that I want to make. Photographing the Borscht Belt had less to do with the idea of its role in Jewish American culture and more to do with your own personal experience growing up. Uh, going to the Catskills? I started the project when I was very confused in life. I was in graduate school. You're required to make a lot of work, produce a lot of, you know, in this case, it was photographs. And I felt really uninspired by Southern California. I don't think I was ever that type of person that was interested in making photographs of, of sunsets. There was a deeper, almost darker content with all of my work. And I got really wonderful advice. It was four words from a mentor and he said Marissa when you don't know what to do you shoot what you know and those four words the idea of shoot what you know brought me to start to think about where I'm from what I was missing out west and what I sought to reconnect with so I really just ran with that I would go on a plane any chance I could get any any of my downtime spring break summer and just go home and and reconnect with the land that I that I was from, and I was also really homesick. And that entire those feelings started the project. Um, I would just drive, drive around, go on back roads, all the places that I grew up driving around in high school, and you know messing around, and just started to reconsider the history of the area. And then, of course, the Borscht Belt, which reigned entirely supreme in Sullivan County for, for so many decades. You go back to the source when you're not sure what direction to move in. You kind of turn and look at yourself. So, you know, the project is really a personal story because it's about the landscape where I grew up. And it turned into a collective story because, like, literally hundreds of thousands of people went to the Borscht Belt, were impacted by the Borscht Belt, even if they know it or not. Alan Zweibel, um, he, um, you know, producer and writer, worked on Saturday Night Live. He wrote the John Belushi Samurai sketch and tons of sketches for Gilda Radner. And the article also included how he used to write jokes for Borscht Belt comedians for $7 a pop on paper bags. Um, and, you know, his name may not be a household name like the likes of Woody Allen or even Seinfeld and Joan Rivers and Mason and Dangerfield and all these people that helped to put the Borscht Belt on the map in terms of the comedic and entertainment legacy that it, that it really built and left behind. When, you, when someone thinks of the Borscht Belt, you think of 1950s, 1940s. Uh, you were growing up at a time when the Borscht Belt had already, uh, height of the Borscht Belt, scene had already passed. Definitely. You know, my parents moved up there. My dad got a job up there in 1987. I think looking back, he picked that job because he too had gone to the Borscht Belt as a kid. My grandparents met while my grandmother was hitchhiking somewhere in the little town of South Fallsburg. And he really had a lot of childhood happy memories, like so many people do about that time. So when he was coming out of school and decided to to select a job, it was it was in the Borscht Belt because it was a place that he wanted to turn around and, and you know, make his own memories. So I think that growing up there in 1987, 1988, there was only a few hotels open, but I really remember going to Kutcher's and the Concord a lot as a kid because my grandpa Jack was a card shark. 
And he would just sit in these huge rooms with these loud, brassy men smoking cigars. And that was, those are the earliest memories of my time. Um, and, and what the Borscht meant to me was really just getting dropped off at a hotel, not being a guest, but swimming and playing shuffleboard. And, and a lot of people, you're right, they think about the 40s, 50s, 60s. They think about the Borscht being kitschy. A lot of people think it is cheesy. Um, some people, you know, don't really like the, the sort of humor that it brought to the table. And a lot of people have complained about the food being disgusting. But I think it was a really wonderful experience um, culturally, socially, um, and formed so many bonds that people, it's undeniable that they extend to the present day, um, where people, especially American Jews, felt at ease and felt like they were part of this greater thing that was happening. And that's one of the things you talk about was saying how uh, the, the the Jewish immigrant population wanted to experience an American lifestyle, uh, but they often found themselves locked out of hotels. Um, so that so Jewish investors started to purchase properties in that area because they realized they can have something of their own in New York. Correct. You know, in the 1920s, Jews were banned from hotels social club membership, certain um, areas of employment in this country. And I think along with the major influx of Jewish immigrants coming into the U.S., they wanted to have that American dream. And that American dream is also built on having that downtime and that vacation. And because they were restricted from so many destinations, there was the Catskills, which was 90 minutes and still is 90 minutes from New York City. It already had a small budding tourism that was built on artists and writers and fishermen and people that were trekking up on the railroad. And a lot of Jewish investors started to buy small farms and even small hotels. And what was once this little blip on the map became 500 hotels and 50,000 bungalows by 1965. By that point, a lot of comedians had set it as a uh, place to, to then pursue comedy and to make a name for themselves, uh, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, and, and you had even sent me a note with uh, from Rodney Dangerfield before he was Rodney Dangerfield. I guess it, uh, his name was Jack Roy. Yeah. Uh, so many, you know, just honed their skills, probably said their worst jokes, um, you know, and then eventually graduated onto major stages at Las Vegas, LA, movies, Atlantic City, you know, all which were really models for um, built when looking at the Borschtbelt by Borschtbelt architects, as well as, you know, all the people that, that came up there that just went into the world of American popular culture. Yeah, and some of the pictures, one of, of a, like a broken vending machine, a Coca-Cola vending machine, it's sort of tragic in a way because you see these pictures where there was such culture at one point and now there's just, it's the desolate, uh, the skating rink also. Uh, one of the things I noticed was the, the lights were still hanging there. The lights were still there from 50 years ago. Everything else was gone. Uh, and you have the side-by-side -side comparison of what, what it used to look like. It used to be uh, this thriving place, it, it, which, which made me think, is, is anybody looking after any of this? Is, is, is anyone overseeing any of this? Believe it or not, each, each property is owned by someone whether they are in the region or out of the region, whether they bought it and are sitting on it because there's always been my entire life this hope of, you know, the Catskills are coming back, we're getting gambling, things are going to turn over. Um, 
So, so each hotel has a, a completely different story about what's going on with it, when it closed, who owns it. Um, some hotels, you have litigations going on with the county you know, suing the owner for letting like something like the Pines Hotel, which is in the book, um, literally decompose. Grossinger's is owned. It's going to be knocked down. They closed in 1986, and now, you know, it's 2017. They've approved, I think, $2 million to knock it down with an unnamed project in the works. Um, I think, um, you know, it may seem that no one monitors any of these hotels, but almost every time I went, I either had to get permission from someone, I would encounter someone, and um, there are eyes, let's put it that way, on these places. Who were some of the people you encountered? I encountered, uh, well, I almost got arrested early in the project. Um, a lot of people, when I started the project, I would always get this the same, the same comment, like, there's nothing there. Why do you want to go there? They're closed. And after a while, you know, I, it, to myself, I would be thinking, well, you're not looking. Because to me, there is something there. Um, there was a story. There is so much history in all of these spaces, there are, for a lot of people, it's nostalgic. There's a lot of memory built on these sites for myself, too. Um, but there's a contemporary story and a story about time and its effects and its, and its wreckage. And it's really bittersweet. There's indeed a, a true pathos that runs through the entire project. You know, a lot of people are so quick to say, your book is so sad. Yeah, it's sad, but there's so much more. There are scenes that are spooky. There are scenes that are peculiar. There are even ones that are comedic. Um, there's one that didn't make the book cut, but I always show it. Um, I show it in book talks. It's a table um, that was set. It has a little card number on it, table 12. Someone set up plates, put fake fruit on the plates, and put little folded up napkins like it was a fancy you know, five-star restaurant. And just to come across that and to see that, like who set up table number 12? It's so, it's perfect. It's just sitting in this room where the rest of the room is raining and dripping and smells like muck and moss and mold. Mm. And, um, you know, there are these elements in the book where you move away from the sadness and maybe move into a different space. And and I didn't want the book to be entirely sad, but 100%, it, it, it is sad. It's, it's about an era that's ultimately gone you know it's 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 an elegy i think in a lot of ways the book we think of ruins as these places that are thousands of years old and you have to traipse like to the middle east and to different countries to see them you know pompeii all of these places but you know these are modern day ruins sitting lying in america um and they're 20 years old 50 years old some are 10 years old and I think the idea of the ruin can conjure up so many feelings. Of course, there's like a sadness and a loss, but there's also this like romantic nature of the ruin. And they're also very telling about metaphor and the cyclical movement of, of everything sort of having a birth and a death and these spaces in between. When I find a plant growing out of the floor that's reaching up to my knees, there's something really wondrous about that and, and almost kind of sublime, where as a photographer, there's no way that I'm walking away from that scene because it has so much beauty and it also has so much life amid all of the sort of death um, that's going on in the background. It went through all these iterations starting in the 19th century of 
when it was like a great location for trading and certain industry? You know, before the Borscht Belt was the Borscht Belt, there were two primary other industries that came before it. One was the lumber industry. You think of a really mountainous, rocky, rugged landscape very close to New York City. And they knocked down wood, logged it down the Delaware River to build up cities like Philadelphia and New York City. And when a lot of the natural resources depleted, um, if you can just imagine, knocking down a lot of trees opens up a lot of the land. So um, the next industries were the tanning industry, which tanned leather, and also farms that supplied a lot of um, cities with local produce, and now you have the railroad. So slowly but surely, the area and the landscape carved itself out to become this vacation destination. It's also, like frankly, really beautiful. And the Catskills has always been inspirational to artists and writers, and people have wanted to go up there to escape like the overcrowding, stifling feeling that New York City can really like bring you at certain times. So when it was finally, you know, turned into the Borscht Belt, it it had a footprint, and um, all that the American Jewish community needed to do was continue to set up hotels and keep going. Um, but you know, as as time passes, it just wasn't cool to go anymore, and for so many reasons. The, the era and the region just faltered. Someone um, told me a really great story. I'll tell it real quick. They were going to go see a band at the Raleigh Hotel. And the opener, uh, sorry, the band canceled. And the opener was this band that no one ever heard of. So this guy and his, his group of friends decided not to go because whoever heard of the opener band called Led Zeppelin. But it, it really just shows you, like, not only did so many comedic greats come up in the Borscht Belt, but so many bands. You know, I've I've read Janis Joplin played the Tamarack, and this is like before Woodstock. And, you know, 1969 mm. Woodstock also put the help to put the Borscht Belt musically on the map because it was really flourishing in, in 69. Um, so there's there's so many stories where you hear about, you know, Ben E. King and, and Sammy Davis Jr. and Duke Ellington. And you're like, wow, they, they were up there because it was the place to be. And, and that's what it was. In the book I write, um, I grew up in the mountains, or as others called it, the country, as if no other mountain or country existed anywhere else on earth. Mm. Because really, for like a period of time, it was the, the place to go. It was the mountains like the place the mecca you often couldn't go by yourself because sometimes you'd have an actual physical risk to you i think that you know the nature of the idea of like what these are which are ruins are it they're very unstable tenuous places where you never know if a floor is unstable if you're going to fall through if i'm not going to have cell phone service if i'm going to encounter someone living in the hotels and and there are many there were many scenarios where I walked into a space and it felt warm, like someone had been living there or someone had been hanging out there, and I just kind of quickly backed up. And very early on, I realized, like, I can't do this alone because I'm, I'm in Grossinger's. There are, I'm in a building surrounded by eight other buildings. It's literally a compound. Um, how can I be here alone? I, I kind of trip myself out over doors slamming and the building creaking and sounds that were being made. But then there's also, you know, like the reality that, you know, I'm 5'5". Five five. Like I could run into someone who's bigger than me, stronger than me. And, you know, I don't want to think about um, what could happen or, or what I'd have to do to talk my way or, or run my way out of a, a dark hotel and a situation. Um, I, I also, you know, brought along a friend 
to talk for comfort, but mostly so I could focus on making the images and not um, on any of the possible other scenarios that could have arisen. Um, you know, like like with you know the cops coming or someone coming to ask me to leave. It was always better that I had someone with me. Are you planning on moving elsewhere in the country going forward, pursuing other projects? I'm thinking about the landscape, not the landscape that I'm from, the Borscht Belt, but maybe a more collective landscape. I love the idea of like urban legends and myths and folklore. Um, and I'm just trying to figure out how I can do a project and, and birth a project that ties those ideas in visually. I'm kind of interested in doing something um, that, that's another statement about this country. I mean, you know, we didn't get into it too much, but like, you know, Jews kind of came to the Borscht Belt because they were banned from other places. Jews left the Borscht Belt because, you know, on their own volition, not, not now because they were banned from other places, but because the world opened up. They were more affluent. There were more destinations for them to go to, you know, uh, uh, on a whole, like it's what we do in America as Americans. We find a place, we absorb it, we suck everything out of it and we go to it. And then when it's not cool anymore or not interesting, we discard it. Many different cities across the U.S., especially cities where there are industry. And, you know, in a, in a very small way, it is a commentary um, on the unfortunate side of sort of discard that we do here. Um, so I don't know. Um, I'm still thinking. It's like a big process of getting stuck and then moving forward. But I think I'll stay on this ground for a new, my next book. Yeah. Work. You know, like maybe, maybe consider this is my plug for the Catskills here um, because um, it really is a, a wonderful place and really affordable. And, you know, there's a lot more going on there than there ever has been in, in my lifetime. Yeah. And if, and if anything, it's at the very least just a little quieter than the city. Yeah. And, and that's why I call the book Revisiting the Remains of America's Jewish Vacation Land, because I like the idea that people through the book go on this visual journey, looking back at a place that they may have gone or their grandparents or their family may have gone. And maybe even just like get in the car, you know, and just drive up there one one sunny weekend in the spring or summer and and just experience what it has to offer today. It's never going to be what it was. You can never recreate a moment in time or an event. Um, but I think that it does have the potential to be something again. And, and time, like that wicked beast, will always reveal itself. And the next five to ten years will be really interesting to see what happens. Well, thank you so much, Marissa, for taking the time to talk. And uh, I definitely recommend this book. Yeah, thanks so much, Ian. Marissa's website is borstbeltbook.com. And she'll be giving a lecture about the book at the New York Public Library on Wednesday, May 17th of 2017. That's it for today's episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. Thanks to Harrison Scott Key, Amy Komai, Krista Renee, and Marissa Scheinfeld for being on today's episode. Thank you, Ian Goldstein, for conducting today's interview with Marissa. You can find out more about Ian on Twitter, at Ian Goldstein Yes. Thanks to Sam Peach for our theme song, Thanks to the folks at Permanent Records in Brooklyn. They contributed to our Patreon page. If you'd like to contribute, visit patreon.com slash doingitwithmikesacks. Mike Sachs has a new book out called Stinker Let's Loose. Pick it up now on Amazon. I'm Rob Schulte, and if you'd like to find out more about me, visit my website, robkschulte.com. That's R-O-B, the letter K, S-C-H-U-L-T-E dot com. 
And so until next week, keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it. Listen, Sean, just what exactly is this center of which you speak? It's not a cult. <laughs>